You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome back to Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress. How's everybody doing today? Uh, I'm your host, Tom Hobble, today. Susan is out picking up her dog, Miss Mac. She's been in two weeks of training. It's been quiet around Susan's house, so she's uh, eager to see how Miss Mac is, I guess, progressed. She's a little terror sometimes, but she's the cutest little dog. Uh, I'm joined today with my wife again, Tracy Hobbled, um, and we have Joelle, in the, our producer, in the room with us today. Hi, again. Joelle. <laughs> thank you thank you was that applause for you or tracy me for Joelle. <laughs> susan always wants an applause so bad she's gonna be so mad no she usually gets a want 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 well i hope everybody's doing good today it's uh nice and warm here in arizona hey it only says it's 84 so it must be kind of cool today i know like this week is supposed to get up to like 100 again. It's like, oh, my gosh. It's, it's too early. That's for sure. Well, Tracy, how about you introduce our guest today? Okay. We are welcoming a Marine. And I say Marine because they say once a Marine, always a Marine. At least that's what my son-in-law says. <laughs> Josh <laughs> Brubaker, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So, Josh, you have quite a story. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess you can see that. <laughs> well, I, I before we like yeah. start the story, story. Um, my my dad lived in Bakersfield for a few years, and that's where Josh is from. And I do need to say that um, used to compete in those cowboy mounted shooting events. And I think, as your mom or someone put it, that um, well, after college, you wanted to trade your six shooter for your M sixteen. But your mom made you go to college before you could join the Marines. You want to just tell us a well, little bit about the backstory? Well, so the thing is, is that I've always wanted to join the military ever since I saw the movie Saving Private Ryan when I was like 13 or 14 years old. Uh, I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to go in the military. I want to go to the Army, Ranger route, and all that, and all that stuff. Um, and then, of course, throughout the years, growing up, I got into cowboying and then got into cowboy mountain shooting. I did that for many years. And then, but one of the deals I made to my mother was the fact that I had to go to college first in order to join the military. And so I went to college and I hated school. I mean, I was, <laughs> I, I, I'm dyslexic. I, I was ADHD. I, 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 my reading and comprehension was really low. So I, college and, it, and that kind of book learning was a struggle for me so the fact that she she thought that i would never see through it and she thought i would stay out of the military because i would never actually follow through and graduate <laughs> well in 2009 <laughs> i finally graduated but between the time when i was 13 to, to 2009 when i was uh i think i was 20 21 22 uh, I, I went from wanting to be an army ranger to just being a Marine. Oh, and, and what caused so, that change? Um, so 
backtrack a little bit. When I was 18 or 19, I was really depressed. I was struggling a lot. Um, and I was dealing with the depression a lot. And it was to a point to where I almost killed myself one night. And it was, a, I've reached out to her, one of my closest friends. She talked me out of it. And then she was dating a Marine who was on his way out, being medically retired at the time. Well, she told him what was going on with me, and he pretty much practically kicked my door in to drag me out <laughs> with him and his Marine buddies to go hang out and got me out of this dark place because mm -hmm. I was very isolated. I All I was doing was working or doing stuff. I really wasn't doing no, nothing social. Not, I, I would do something social, but the problem was at the time, my mindset was, is like, I really wanted to be in a relationship and kind mm -hmm. of like, I wasn't very receptive to court girls at the time. Yeah. And it got shot down a lot and it kind of like messed with my mind a little bit more. Not saying it's their fault. It was just more of along the lines of the, uh, just every rejection just kind of added to the, the devil speaking right. in the back of my head, like you're not worth anything. And so. But it was a group of Marines that got me out and, and took me under their wings and then kind of like brought me in and really got me out of that dark place. And so when the time came, I was like, well, I really want to do the military because I, I, I learned enough in college and I grew up just enough to understand that, like, you know what? I don't want to live 30, 40, 50 years to think what if the whole time. Right. You know? Yeah. So I decided, like, you know what? I am going to join the military, but this time I'm going to join the Marines because those guys saved my life quite literally. I want to, you know, I want to be part of the Brotherhood officially. Sure. Uh, my mother didn't like it. She was trying to get me <laughs> to go into the Army military police because I did get an AS degree in criminal justice for law enforcement. But I was thinking, you know what? I'm the one signing the four-year contract. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I want to go into the infantry field. Yeah. I stood up to her. It didn't go over very well. <laughs> That's a brave man right there. That's your first mission yeah. is standing up to mom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I um, I told her, no, I'm signing a document. I'm signing what I want to sign. Yeah. Well, you got to make yourself happy. And I'm going where I want to go. Exactly. Yeah. Pursue your dreams. And so she, she was upset, but at, at the time, my mom was also going through a lot of, like, I think, you know, the whole empty nest syndrome because I was getting ready to leave. My younger brother was getting ready to leave tech for Texas school to go to college in Texas. So it was just like she just saw her kids just leave. <laughs> That's right. You know, get up and they're so, gone. Yeah. Empty nest syndrome. Yeah. But I like, I, yeah, it's the empty nest syndrome. But I also like to think that overall, in the long run, I've earned more of my mother's respect standing up to her and be like, no. I'm going to do what I want to do. Right. So, and so that's why I ended up joining the Marine Corps on, uh, because it's something I wanted to do, be in the military kind of plans did change from, from life experience and, you know, events. And, but honestly, I wouldn't take it back for a second. I know a lot of people ask if I have any regrets. I was like, nah, not not for a second. I wouldn't trade any of it. Good. And especially when I went in for the Marine Corps trying to be a rifleman. And, and I was forced into... What's that? I was going to say, and to be clear, you're a Hollywood Marine, correct? 
Yeah. Pendleton. <laughs> Camp Pendleton. Okay. <laughs> that was also that was also another reason why I chose the Marine Corps was especially with the infantry field because typically the Marine Corps doesn't ship men across state like over the country. Like if you enlist on the east of Mississippi River, right, you're going to stick to the East Coast. If you enlist west of the Mississippi River, you're going to stay on the West Coast. So I also thought of it like, well. There's a very high probable chance that I'm going to stay in California right. and stay close to home. Yeah, which and I is won't good. Get stationed over in Germany or Indiana or whatever, some random army base. <laughs> and so, but yeah, but what was funny was when I was in SOI, like I said, I wanted to go be a rifleman, didn't be a saw gunner. But when I went into SOI School of Infantry, uh, we had a lot of a reserve enlisted men mm-hmm. in my platoon so they were all 0311 contracted to where guys like me i was 03 open meaning i could go into any weapons field within the 03 designations right well they came up and the weapons guys were like hey listen so two things are going to happen either volunteer for a weapons role and actually enjoy it or have have a chance to enjoy it or we're going to volunteer you into a weapons <laughs> role that you may or may not enjoy or succeed in and then you can get washed out if you don't make it so i thought well crap if i gotta go into weapons well i might as well become a 31 and work with machine guns because that yeah. sounds like a lot of fun exactly after the first week of classes <laughs> on the 240 bravo i never looked back and i think to myself thank god i went this route yeah that's a lot of fun shooting those machine guns that's for sure Oh, yeah. It was like the 240 Bravo, the 50 Cal, and the M250 Cal, and the Mark 19 is what we were trained on. Oh, okay. Now, didn't you end up in an amphibious <laughs> assault group, and that's why your mom thought you were safe and weren't going to go to <laughs> Afghanistan? What happened there? Well, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> this is also a little bit of like you want to hear like God having a sense of humor, so I hate the beach. <laughs> I like being like I like being on the coastal town. I like the weather, the smell, and stuff like. But I hate getting wet in the ocean and then sand getting all over you. I I can't stand it. It, it bugs me. My company, the infantry company I got sent to, was the Amtrak AAV Amphibious Assault Force. <laughs> Meaning, it's literally our job. To take the beach. That's right. <laughs> that means getting wet, wet and rolling around in the sand. <laughs> That's crazy. But, yeah. So my mother thought since I was part of an amphibious assault group <laughs> that I wouldn't get sent to Afghanistan, but she didn't understand was that that was just one role that the Marine Corps right. played. Right. Like, First deployment was at 31st Muse, so that's all we focused on was amphibious assault and, and humanitarian aid training and stuff like that. Right. But does it mean, like, the next rotation came around, we were slotted for Afghanistan. So that immediately went from us being an amphibious assault force to a ground assault force. And we started training with MRAPs, tanks, helos, and all the other stuff that would go along with it. And, and, and you know, when you get to afghanistan you're hot you get all sweaty and there's nothing but sand there anyway so you get a lot of that beach feeling right there too right <laughs> actually i got lucky the area that we were in uh musakela district which um trying to think of what my fob was called but no it was actually mostly farm fields oh 
So very, very little sand. So a lot like Bakersfield then. <laughs> very much like, except for instead of seeing produce, you just saw drugs growing everywhere. Uh. <laughs> like the, you know, black tar, pop, poppy, heroin, and all that stuff. Yeah. That's the only difference. Craziness. Instead of seeing wheat and corn, you just saw heroin. Wow. <laughs> Different world, that's he for sure. He was in the first Gulf oh, War. Oh, definitely. Things changed a lot from the first one to the Afghanistan, that's Yeah, for that's sure. for sure. Yeah, the war I was in was short compared to the one that you were in. Yeah. I mean, it's the difference between fighting a conventional army and an unconventional army. So Same how, thing that happened in Vietnam. Yeah, exactly. So how long were you in the Marines before you actually got your deployment? Uh. Well, so my first deployment was into 2011 on the 31st new, and then 2012 was our Afghanistan deployment. Oh, okay. Yeah, was that the Japan one where you did the relief work after the tsunami? In yep. Between? Okay. Yep. We were part of that. We were part of that task force that went and helped give them humanitarian aid to them. Uh, unfortunately, my company didn't get to do a whole lot. I wanted to do more, but. Uh, Higher ups who handle PR stuff thought it may not look very well to have armored track vehicles roll up on the shores of Japan <laughs> and Marines piling out of it. Yeah. May not send the right message. Yeah. At least that's the rumor that we were all told, and that's what we all believe. So. Look a little intimidating. Whether if it's true or yeah. not, who knows? Who knows? I know Golf Company, who is a Hilo company, they got to go and help clean up a little bit. Huh. Wow. So I guess we want to talk about your. Afghanistan, your June 2012, or you want to do a little bit before when you got there? Um, deployment? I mean, not a lot happened on the 31st, if that's what you're asking, the first deployment. Uh, that was the typical, uh, as we call it, like the booze cruise. <laughs> we did some training here and there, but in reality, you know, except for the exception of Japan getting hit with tsunami and us doing, you know, that. That was probably the most the most realistic thing we've done, but you know, and then Afghanistan, uh, that was a completely different beast. I bet that was one of those. That was one of those things. It's like you know, no matter how hard we trained, we were just like, "Holy cow, this is like real now," and it was completely different because everything you're taught, like hearts and minds, they want to help you or you want to help them as much as possible. And then you just end up just getting like, just spat on kids calling you names, all sorts of stuff. And so, but I mean, and it was also the funny thing was, is so hilarious was one of the big things that we talked about was with this is 2012. So, you know, president Obama was talking about doing a massive drawdown. And, you know, cutting back on major operations. So one of the biggest things we were told in brief, I was like, do not say anything about the withdrawal. And so far as they know, we are not leaving. Okay. Well, we went out, we went to the local bazaar to try to like do the whole meet and greet, introduce ourselves and whatnot. I remember the lieutenant was asking him, talking to him. And then he asked us, oh, so when are you guys leaving? The, the civilian, the market <laughs> owner. So when are you guys leaving? And he's like, I don't know where you hear that from, but we're not leaving. And so they're talking back and forth between the translator and stuff. And he goes, like, all right, so where did you hear that we're leaving? <laughs> oh, your president said it. <laughs> and then he showed us a TV that had CNN playing on it. And there's President Obama on CNN yeah. talking about the withdrawal. Right. And just like, 
awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's, it was that's, one of those moments like you laughed at it, you want to be angry, but you're just like, oh, of course, that's just how it rolls. Exactly. That's just the military for you. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. No, that's just government for you. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. So, <laughs> so, uh, what were your main duties over there in Afghanistan? What what was your squad doing? Well, mostly, uh, honestly, it was mostly defensive operations. We kind of like tried to keep the peace as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always like to describe it. We were we were we were Marines doing law enforcement work. Okay, in there, like we would, we got caught up in a couple of ambushes and whatnot, and then uh, and we would get into our firefights, but. Most of the time, like even if we we took a couple of shots and we fired back and we move on them, we would find a compound and we would have to then investigate, try to figure out who shot at us, who right. did this, because it was not uncommon for the, the the fighters to come in and overtake a compound and tie the family up or have the family somewhere inside the compound. Hmm. So you had to be very careful about entering compound because you could actually have innocent civilians in right. there. And thank God we didn't actually have any real hostage situations standoffs or anything like that most of the time they would shoot at us then once we start getting too close they would just simply bug out and we would just find a family in uh, somewhere in a corner of the facility or the compound it's uh but we were pretty much law enforcement we we had iodine gun we would use to check for uh gunpowder residue yeah we'd have iris scanners we would take dna um just so that way we can keep track of the database or see if they're wanted for anything. Uh, along those lines, a lot of defensive securities. Uh, we only took place, or we only took part in two oper- uh, offensive operations, which were, excuse me, uh, Operation Jaws and then Operation Branding Iron. And Branding Iron being the one I got hurt on. Okay. So, uh, so for, for... Go ahead. Oh, I would say, so our standard routine was we had a rotation of all the platoons. One platoon would stand on guard and QRF. One platoon would do short-range security patrols around the fob to make sure that the enemy doesn't set up any kind of caches near us. And then one platoon would be doing long-range patrols, which is typically usually they mount up in vehicles, push out to an ANA or an A&P compound, set up in there, and then conduct security operations out in that area. Okay. And that's pretty much that was just life. We just and then we all three platoons once a week we would just rotate through all those jobs. Hmm. A little bit of variety yeah, for you. Yeah, a lot of variety. So now there mm-hmm. you only had 2 months left on your deployment and then what happened? <laughs> well, was it only 2 months? Anyways, yeah, so we were like I said we were doing a major operation called Operation Branding Iron. Uh this was out of our normal AO. Like I said, we are Fob, there we go. Cobb Shagazi was my fob or combat outpost. Cobb. Uh, we were in the Musakela district. Uh, we Operation Branding Iron got pushed out. Or was actually in Kaljaki, and so that place turned into a hotbed zone. We, what I remember of the briefing was, recon marines got sent in. They got pushed out. Then they tried sending in Marsoc. Then one of their birds got shot down, and they turned into a defensive battle. And so command decided that, no, we're not going to risk that kind of security or that operation anymore. So they just decided to send in an entire infantry battalion. 
to clean it all out again. And that was our job. It's Echo Company, which is my company, 25 Echo, Golf, and Weapons got tasked with it. And then we got Charlie from 1-3, if I remember correctly, 1st Battalion, 3rd Regiment. Um, they were there assisting us as well, since Fox Company had to stay behind and take over FOB security for all of our FOBs. And so this was supposed to be, I think, an 18-day, if I remember correctly, uh, operation dismounted the entire time. We got heloed in, we dropped in the middle of the night, and then we're on foot the rest of the time. Wow. And I got about halfway through, I think. We were halfway through or just a little over halfway through on the day that I got hurt. So it's, we were in our we were set up in a regular patrol base, which is part of our plan. We were kind of operate my platoon. We were just operating in that area. And then we got tasked with destroying a machine gun bunker, which turned out to be a really good machine gun bunker because not even a hellfire missile from a Cobra could level it. Wow. It just took the, <laughs> yeah, it took the missile and just kind of just dusted itself off. That was pretty much all it did. It was just Jeez. knocked the dust off. So we got tasked with to go take it out in which, um, our assault men, Corporal Blom and Lance Corporal Beckinstead came up with the idea of wrapping, I think the I think they said about a pound or two pounds of comp B or C4 around a small rocket and threw it inside the bunker and destroyed it from the inside out. <laughs> and so that's that's what that's how they were able to level it from the inside out. Uh-huh. And so we were then on our way back to our patrol base when I stepped on an IED and went and it went off. So do you remember stepping on it or what's, what's your last memory? So actively um, my last memory was I was walking through kind of like a, a gateway to a poppy field. There was a wall surrounding the whole field and there was just this little gateway that we were walking through. But because we turned a corner of a building, one of part of our training in patrols said if you turn a corner, you turn around and you walk backwards until you make eye contact with the guy behind you. And then you can turn around and continue forward. You do that to keep the kidnapping risk down right. or to make sure like you're all sane together. Yeah. Well, when I was I turned around, I made eye contact with Sergeant Dion, and then I turn around and it was my left foot was going down. I go, huh. This here is a choke point. Next thing I know, I'm on the ground. And I can smell like sulfur and rotten mm. eggs all over the place. And I'm just numb, warm, fuzzy feeling throughout my whole body. And I look down and my left foot's just gone. Wow. And that's when I realized like, okay, bomb just went off. I tried my, I noticed the top cover on my 240 was popped open. So I tried to close it down because next thing I know, I was trying to think about getting my 240 up because I'm thinking complex ambush, which mm-hmm. was, you know, kind of a favorite tactic of the, right. of, of the current cell. So I'm thinking we're about to get shot at. So I tried to get my 240 up, but it wouldn't stay closed. That's when I looked down and I saw that the receiver has been completely punctured with shrapnel. Wow. So my 240 was done. Yeah. And by the time I realized that, Corporal Abear, which is the team leader I was attached to, got to me and he started putting tourniquets on, started giving me medical aid, um, which I got to say was I was attached to second squad from Echo, third platoon, second, uh, second squad, third platoon. 
was a, who I was attached to. And those guys were, I got to say, they were probably one of the best guys to get hurt with because they didn't even hesitate. So the way that our the tactics work with the Marine Corps when we were over was that each fire team in an emerge in a case of an IED detonation and an injured Marine, each fire team has its own task, aid and litter team, LZ team. And then we have the team that handles the communication. So, you know, bomb went off about who it was. Lance Corporal Jarvis was on the radio with, the, with Lieutenant Long. And they immediately started calling up the nine line to try to get the bird spun up. And then the guys, I think it was Lieutenant Long picked out an LZ for it. The LZ team went out, started immediately sweeping the LZ and securing it. Aiden litter team ran up to where I was at, swept the area for secondaries, got the litter, got the, the uh, litter out to get ready to be ready for transport. Doc, Abear were working on me. And I pretty much was all I had to do was just lay there and just let them, <laughs> you know, yeah. do their thing. Were you conscious and the whole I, time? Uh, I lost consciousness for about, mm, I would say about maybe six seconds. Mm -hmm. um, I think I was actually kind of conscious. So here's the thing is, act, like I so say, actively remember, I remember just step in and next day I know I'm on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh there for a while after the injury i was having night when i was having nightmares reliving that day i actually have memories of me flying through the air because i got thrown 15 feet up in the air wow. and coming back down and one of the trauma doctors or head trauma doctors when i explained it to him like why am i having these memories but i can't recall he goes well probably happened was because one of the things is I hit the back of my Kevlar, hit, my Kevlar hit the back of the wall when I came back down and it came and it gave me part of my TBI is a thyroid condition. Hmm. And so he thinks that when I hit the back of my head, it knocked me out for a second. And then it kind of like it's part of the head injury right. is the loss of that memory. But it, when I'm asleep, there's something about like, it's not unusual when you're asleep, you can remember that stuff or dream about it. As yeah. if like you were still awake. Yeah, because then your subconscious—that's all recorded in your subconscious—and now yeah. it's reliving or replaying through your dreams. There, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So I actually remember, and I threw up like, man, I was three hundred and sixty pounds with all my gear on. It still threw me <laughs> yeah. fifteen feet up in the air. Man, and even crazy. though I looked down, on my left foot was gone, my right leg was shredded with shrapnel. Um, but what I didn't know internally was that when it hit the ground, I actually shattered my pelvis and my hips separated. Oh man! And my artery in my right leg also ruptured as well. So if a bear didn't get the tourniquet up and high on the leg, which is what we're trained for, I probably would have bled out right. because that artery was bleeding out internally not extra right so they would so never know you, you yeah you wouldn't have seen it which is why part of our training is like you try to get the limb not the wound exactly so uh and so but when i so i remember in boot camp one of the one our our uh, knowledge hat was just like when we're giving us medical training and stuff like that he goes if you're hurt and you don't know anything else to do just stay calm and relax and let your guys work on you because a calm Marine is a lot easier to work on <laughs> than a, 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 than a freaking out Marine. Right. So that's what I remember. So they got me, I can't do anything. So the, I just kind of pretty much laid there and then just let them do it. And so 
that's also I had complete trust in their abilities to actually do it correctly. Right. I wasn't worried about that. And so, uh, but yeah, sure enough. Uh, so when during that time, apparently an Abrams a tank was in this in the general vicinity, and they decided like, oh well, we can come by and pick them up, and throw them on top of the turret to make it safer for me to transport to uh to lc so if another id would go off or they hit something else the tank could take most take a hit right. and i'll be all right on top so these tank crews this tank comes rolling right up and they start piling they, they jump out of their tanks they start grabbing me my guys are handing them off to me and i looked and i see my right leg or my right foot got caught on the barrel of the tank and my leg started moving at oh. my knee joint the wrong direction. <laughs> oh, man. And I was like, oh, boy. It was like as if like you're taking your knee. And it was just bending to the to right the side. knee joint. And I was just like, oh, I'm hitting the driver's helmet. <laughs> and he looked, what? And I just point to my leg. He looks down at it and he goes, oh, grabs it, pushes it down. Like it was just ragged too. Like there was no resistance to it. Man. He just pushes it down, puts it back in. He goes, you didn't see that. <laughs> now, if this is a movie I was watching, I'd be closing my eyes right now saying, tell me when the girl oh. starts over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so then it was funny was when I got on the turret, they put me next to the commander's hatch, which happens to be the platoon commander, which is a lieutenant or a second lieutenant. And he gives me a bottle of water and he was like, are you thirsty? I'm like, yeah, I'm really caught mouth. I will take some water. And it was cold water. This is the first time I had cold water since I left Leatherneck <laughs> uh, about three or four months. And I think it was the combination of morphine and shock, but I just started straight up chewing this lieutenant out for having refrigerators in the tanks <laughs> and he was just like no there's just we have an ice chest on the back on the rack or whatever you know and i was complete out of my mind at that oh, point i was really like you know and so wow and yeah and it was like lieutenant long comes over and goes hey brubaker you're gonna be all right he goes sir they got fridges <laughs> he just looked at me and just kept walking <laughs> like you're out of your mind <laughs> yeah. yeah and so but so they transport me to the facility they transport me to the lz they got me off the abrams sergeant neon and sergeant stars at the head of me with the with, at the litter the helicopter comes in and which, oh, back up a little bit, reverse. When I was on the tank, the lieutenant is like, hey, there's your helicopter. So see those three helicopters up there? That's your Kazavak. And as we see that, we just see two of the Cobra, one Cobra and the one of the, the Black Hawk, just nose pitched straight down to the ground and they just fall out of the sky. Holy and he's God. just like, oh, <laughs> did they just get shot down? Because <laughs> oh, they just fell fast and come to find out it was a common tactic is that two escort cobras and one black hawk the one cobra and one black hawk would drop down to the ground like vietnam style just straight straight down to the nose one would stay on overwatch so if they start taking fire they can see where it's coming right. from and neutralize the threat and then they would just skim along on the flat line of the ground as fast as they can to avoid small arms fire so needless to say that bird comes in it lands. 
they throw me in, it's only on the ground for maybe 10 seconds and it's off on, it's already gone. And so, and the guys are sitting there working on me. I remember them. These are some of the, like, even though it was an army Kazavak shock, but dude, those medics in there were spot on because they had four IVs in me in about five minutes. Wow. Just pumping me full of IVs, which is very hard to do in a helicopter on a dehydrated Marine. <laughs> you know, we were sitting there operating in 130 degree weather, yeah. extremely dehydrated. Yeah. Try to find a and vein. And they had the vibration. Yeah. yeah. Find a vein. And you got the vibration of the helicopter. Yeah. Those guys had no problems whatsoever. And so they get me back and all this took place when they got, when I landed, I think uh, they took me to Fob Eddie and I got in a surgical tent. I believe it was only 30 minutes. That's amazing. After detonation. That's amazing. It was a 15 minute round, but it was a fast, it takes me longer to explain the story, <laughs> tell the story than it is to actually took place. Jeez. That's unbelievable. But that's what, yeah, I mean, it, that's what saved your life, though, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, most definitely. You know, having fast effects, you know, yeah. honestly, if if I had those injuries probably 10 years prior, I don't think I would have made it yeah, just because of, they didn't have the Kazabak techniques that they did now hmm. when, when I was there. That's craziness. So you had a couple oh, yeah. surgeries in <clears throat> Afghanistan, and then they sent you to Germany. And didn't they have to? Well, yeah. I started off in Eddie at, uh -huh. at the FAS there. Then they sent me to Kabul, which is the capital of Afghanistan, mm -hmm. had a surgery there. Then I went to Longstuhl, Germany. Uh, I think I had, I think I was there for a little over a day. Okay. And then I got to the East Coast. I honestly don't know because they had me in drug induced coma the entire time. Mm -hmm. All I know is it took me three days to go from, to go from Eddie to, uh, Walter Reed. Okay. That's that alone was pretty quick. And, and you had a couple surgeries during that time mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah. If I were, if I remember correctly, each stop had at least one life-saving surgery just to restabilize <laughs> me for the next trip. That's pretty much they were, all the doctors there were doing was keeping me stable, prepping me for the next trip. So I can at least make it back to Walter Reed where they could get the real work done. Mm -hmm. Wow. But all the surgeries I had there was just literally just life, like just sustaining surgeries. That's so, amazing. That is amazing. And Walter Reed is quite the so. So what do you remember about Walter Reed? Like what's your first memory versus like what you've been told you remember? Um, I remember, I remember, uh, so once again, drug induced memory right. here. Cause I still remember it this way. Um, I felt like I was fully suspended, standing up, completely secured, hmm. and I couldn't move. Hmm. Extremely thirsty and stuff. So I literally thought I was standing up and like just like you ever think of the atom like diagram of the guy right. doing that. Yeah, with his I arms stretched out. I literally felt like out. I was doing that. Yeah, I literally felt like I was doing that. But in reality, all I was doing was laying in a hospital bed with a neck brace and I had an exafix on and I was, they just had, cause I had just gotten in, they had all of this stuff on me just for precautionary stuff. Right. And uh, so I just couldn't move in because of the drugs and everything else. I was just completely like out of my mind, <laughs> like hallucinations, 
you know, replaying some firefights. Like I, <clears throat> half the time I thought I was still in Afghanistan. The other half the time I thought I was being abused by the nursing staff. It was just, <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah, I bet. It was really, it was crazy. They said it was a long process. How many surgeries do you remember? Like what was your process that they had to go through with your wounds and making, um, making my decisions? Mom said, to- so for one thing, before I left for Afghanistan, I actually gave my mother general power of attorney. Yeah. And I remember one time I, they had, they were trying to have me sign for a surgery and I was so, so stoned with drugs that I couldn't even remember how to spell my first name. So I go, I can't legally do this because I'm too out of it. My mother has general power of attorney. She can make medical decisions on my behalf. So there from now out, from here on out, you refer to her and have her sign documentations mm. and stuff. Like I was just out of it. Yeah, I bet. And I don't know, honestly, I honestly don't know how many surgeries I've had. I know my mother said she stopped counting after 50. Oh. Jeez. That's... And there was a lot more than that. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there was some that she didn't even have a clue about, you know, whether mine. Uh, no, no. She... No, she has, she had, she, they always, she knew every surgery that was going on. They, they, they worked, it just because the military hospital, they still work like a civilian yeah. hospital is in. Someone has to give permission to have these surgeries. They don't just like, oh, it's military. We got to do these <laughs> operations. They just dragged me out and go do an operation. No, yeah. they need signed consent. But you had your mom as your operate. advocate and a mom is probably mm-hmm. the best advocate that you could have. Right. She was there to take uh, care of you. That's exactly, well, especially since I was single and I didn't have a wife. Right. So, the story would have been different if I was married at the time, but I wasn't. So, yeah, definitely, you know, you're, at least you would, I won't, uh, my mother was great, but I've had heard stories of other mothers actually taking advantage of their sons, yeah. and it was really sad and heartbreaking yeah, I that bet. that actually happens. You can't but, imagine a parent doing that to their child, especially at that time, but I've heard that I, too. It's, it's, it's sad. It's, I, I can't. One mom like gambled away a whole bunch of his money, and it's it's crazy yeah. what happens. Oh, yeah. It, it's a sad story. But so, yeah. So, luckily for me, I had that documentation already in line because if I didn't have that in, in line, it would have been a lot harder of a process. Yeah. Oh, I bet. So, so now you're done with your surgeries for them, or at least the the ones to save your life. How, what, what's your physical condition like now? Like right now, now, or just right Right, after, right after. Yeah. Well, you know, right after the initial surgeries, when you get the Walter Reed. Because don't you have an infection? Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. I actually spent two and a half weeks in ICU having life-saving surgeries done because of the infection. Uh, Eventually they come around. They say like, we can't save the leg. We can't do it. We can't cure. We can't kill this fungus. We don't know what's going on. And that's because you stepped Uh, on a dirty bomb, right? Yeah. That's what they're, that's what they're speculating was that it was laced with it Uh, because it's not native to Afghanistan. Cause if it was, they would have seen a lot more of it. Right. So it's kind of, hard for them to tell what really happened but so they ended up just like it, we got to take the leg the trauma doctor wanted to take my leg and my right hip like he just wanted to be safe and sorry because there was no room for error mm-hmm. and it was dr newman who was my orthopedic doctor 
said, like, no, I think we can save his hip and we can save this much of his leg. I don't think it got any higher than this. So they had, they took me into surgery and then within like 15 minutes, they came back out and my mom's like, what's going on? You guys were supposed to be in there for almost six hours. And that's when the doctor's like, we can't do it. We can't save the leg. We, we got him in there. We opened him up and we're just, we just immediately know we can't save it. So they brought it out and they were like, we need his permission to amputate. Not even my mother um, could have made that call. Wow. So they woke me up and the doctor explained the situation. And I was just like, uh, well, are you stupid? I want to live. So take the hip. <laughs> yeah. And so luckily they didn't have to take the hip. Dr. Newman was correct. They were able to save my hip and my right leg. What's left of my right leg. Okay. Which turned into an, an above knee amputation. And then, of course, I lost a little bit more of my left leg because they were fighting uh, dead flesh. And dead flesh is, it spreads right. and breeds. So as that flesh dies, you have to cut it off and, cut, and get rid of it. So I ended up losing a little bit more because when the bomb went off, I just lost my foot just above the ankle and I lost about half my shit hmm. by the time they were able to get the dead flesh all out. Uh, so yeah, during that time, because of the flesh, they had a crash because of the fungus, they had a crash card out of my, um, my, my hospital room. They had guys in their crash team in my operating room. They had, I think I ended up flatlining three times before I got done. And then, uh, so they amputated my leg. They took it. That night, I almost died again because when I was in the middle of the night, when I was sleeping, my artery in my right leg ruptured and I ended up bleeding out all over the room. Like we're talking, you know, you ever see those dramatic, overly dramatic. <laughs> uh drama hospital where they have blood shooting on the wall and all right. that stuff yeah, that's pretty much what it was my mom said it was looked like a battlefield like there's blood everywhere Dang. and the only reason why i even survived was there was a doc uh, one of um there was a resident doctor on my team that night watching me and he actually used his hands on it as like a tourniquet on my right oh, leg and held it there to slow the blood flow down enough for Dr. Newman to drive from his house to the hospital to perform the emergency surgery. But he held onto my leg and so tight for so long that when they got him to got us to the OR, they actually had to physically remove his hands because he couldn't move them anymore. Jeez. They had completely locked up on him. That yeah. guy say he, Dr. Newman was like, Oh no, I didn't save your life. That man <laughs> saved your life. Wow. Because that's you would have bled to death before I could even get there. Yeah. The way you're bleeding. Wow. And so, but cool thing about it. So before they amputated my leg, that white blood cell count was so high that my kidneys have already shut it down. They were shutting down. My organs were failing. It was like a cancer patient on yeah. the deathbed. The blood, it was just bad. And there was talk about even after we take the leg and the white blood cell counts comes back, I was going to be, had to be put on dialysis machines to restart my kidneys. Like we're talking like it was still going to be a long road yeah. ahead of me. They took the leg. I had that one really bad night of the artery ruptured. But after that, within 24 hours, my white blood cell count was normal. My kidneys had restarted Jeez. on their own. I was actually stable. And two, 48 hours after off taking the right leg, I was out of ICU. I was stable enough to be out of ICU and into and, and inpatient. 
Uh, <laughs> they were like, doctors were just like, I can't explain it. Yeah. I can't explain it. Like, he should not have recovered. He should not have flipped around like that. It's definitely a God thing miracle. Oh, yeah. And, and, well, that's the difference. It was like, yeah, you guys can't explain it, but I do. Exactly. And, you yeah. know, man, men of science and then, you know, men of religion. <laughs> that's <And> right. So, <laughs> yeah. God's not done with you. That's why you're here. So how long no, was the no. process from the surgeries till you got to that? Is it, what do they call it? Building 62, which is like that yeah. facility where you rehab or. So let's just say this. I remember, I happen to just remember this. I got hurt in June and we got, I got sent to building 62 in September. Oh. So I was inpatient that whole time. Wow. And I happen to remember that was because I got sent to building 62 and my guys came home the next week. Excuse me. And so I was able to go home for their homecoming to see them. Wow, that's They good. left me on a three-day pass. And so, but I that, the only reason why they even allowed me to go was because I was our I was able to go to outpatient. But they were still like, well, we still need you in here though. Only a three-day pass. <laughs> yeah, so. you're coming back. You're you're not free. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't free, but. It was enough. Okay. So I guess well, we're grateful God gave you that miracle. So how long from the time you were at this building 62, it's like an apartment complex where your mom was able to stay with you. Be your, Cause like you say, you're this independent 25 year old adult. Now you have your mom <laughs> as your caretaker till you Pushing were around on a wheelchair. Yeah. Back on your feet and yeah. functioning. And it, now building 62 is actually kind of like if I remember, I think that's how a lot of barracks are set up nowadays is that you have two sleeping areas with their own bathrooms and then you have one common, common area yeah. right in the barrack, yeah. right in the middle. So it allows you to have the privacy of having your own separate room, but then you have actually a full size kitchen, uh, well, about apartment size kitchen. You know, you can at least cook, right. stuff like that. Um, and then you had like the, yeah, the common area where you can lounge around, watch TV and so on. So and it was then, very, it was pretty comfy. I would have to say it was a very well done uh, recovery. That's a remarkable. How long until you went from building sixty two where you were? Because I hate to speed this up. This is such a good story to where you got your prosthetics and then are like where you are today. So I ended up fighting open wound infections for about a year okay. after my injury. I just could not close up. So I was about a probably about a year and a half before I got my prosthetics mm -hmm. and I was able to start um, walking. Now, granted, we also have the average turnaround time from someone getting hurt and getting their prosthetics set up to start rehabbing their prosthetics is about three to four months. And I was at a year and a half. And that's all because of the infections that you had, right? Yeah, I was mad fighting a lot of infections. And my wounds just wouldn't close up because of the infections. Yeah. I was just fighting open wounds the whole time. It was just like a year of just wound care and doing whatever rehab I could do. Hmm. That's amazing. So mentally, how are you handling all this at that time? I thought I was handling it fine. But, I mean, I did have my support group there at Walter Reed. Mm -hmm. I was taken under a wing by a name, man named uh, Eric Burkett. He was Burkett. He was a major 
or it, he, he was a, a Marine major. He was an Osprey pilot who got hurt in Af- Africa roughly a couple months before I did. And so he kind of took me under the wing. And so that helped me out with my recovery, hanging out with him and his family. Uh, so that helped out a lot. But the thing was, it was like, it was, I probably honestly wasn't handling it very well on the surface. I made it believe I was, but deep down inside, <laughs> I, I was not. Yeah. And honestly, I honestly didn't get any kind of real help for almost five years. Wow. Well, so, I, I commend you that you have gotten through. Cause now you're married, right? Do you have a family? Yep. And yes, I have three kids. Uh, two girls, my two oldest are girls, and then I have a boy. Wow, congratulations. And you said there Thank were you. a couple organizations that did help you finally. Yeah, so uh, no, I wouldn't say finally. They were always there. Okay. Simplify Fund was always there. Okay. Simplify Fund was our first organization. They had a major presence at Walter Reed. They were always there. They were always giving us a hand. Yellow Ribbon Fund was also there. Uh, they worked really great hand-in-hand because – Simplify Fund, which is also now America's Fund as well, uh, they handled the veteran stuff directly where Yellow Ribbon Fund kind of helped the caregivers out. And they do stuff for the caregivers who were stuck there and just kind of like isolated. So they kind of, one focused on one, the other one focused on the other. They yeah, were great. Uh, Gary Sinise Foundation was always there as well. I mean, Gary himself was always there. Huh. And... And I mean, I, my goodness, if you want to hear some of the stories I've heard, like the VIPs I've hung out with, I've met, uh, let me see. Oh, now I'm drawing a blank on all of them. I can <laughs> off at any other time, but right now I'm drawing a blank. Oh, Colin Powell. I yeah. met Colin Powell when he had surgery. Uh, let's see here. Who was the Arizona senator who was shot down? Um, McCain. McCain. He came through. Um Let's see here. I've met General Mattis before he retired. General Dunsford spent a lot of time in my room. Uh, let's see here. And then, of course, uh, General Amos, was he was pretty active, always making visits. Uh, but probably the one that was there the most, as much as he could, was definitely Gary. We saw him on a regular basis. That, that's that, awesome. Yeah, that's great that he, you know, give up his time to come in and see you guys and spend time with you. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then it was actually the Gary Sinise Foundation that we got, they got us our house. They built our home, the RISE program. Hmm. Good so deal. that was, that was, so that's how, because I remember Gary, he had, when I got hurt, I think he had just started his RISE program. And he told me like, when you're ready, I would love to build you a home. And so um, when I retired, and I was engaged. I was like, well, I guess I better start doing paperwork or something on this. <laughs> well, that's that, awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. So what is life like for you now? What What are you doing? Well, that is another story in of itself, if you really want to be honest with it. Um, right now, life is good. We're, I'm on the up and up. Uh, I've got registered for school. I'm going to go to school for a biz, an AST for a business, business administration and then uh, work while at the same time earning a certificate for manufacturing technology. Okay. And that covers 
primarily what I want to get out of that is working on CNC working with CNC machines okay. and lathes machines. Right. Because of an army veteran that I know here in Baker, so I've been close friends with actually even before I became a Marine. Uh, he he's a gun he's a trained gunsmith and he wants to open up his gun shop. And he wanted me to manage his retail store, but I I, I kind of convinced him let me go in as a 50-50 partner. So because I do have a retail background, I did work a couple of retail stores. So I was just thinking, well, I work there, but I need to know how to run one. Yeah. So I figured I got my benefits. I might as well use it. Exactly. Well, good for you. That yeah, sounds but fantastic. That, but like I said, that's a whole other story because right now I'm good. But I mean, my goodness, I spent the last five years uh, battling an addiction that almost destroyed my family. And it was all because I wasn't handling my PTSD or coping. I mm -hmm. thought I was, but I really wasn't. Right. And I was struggling. And I just started a rehab program at our church about almost two years now. Okay. Well, I'm so thankful and so, that you're doing okay now and that you got the help you need. And that's why under the shield, we do what we do. If you want to explain a little bit. what. Yeah. So, I mean, that it's, we find mainly we work with police, fire, um, border patrol uh, agents. Um, but we also work some with military and vets too. And, and our big thing is, is like Susan coined this phrase, the psychological garbage can. And basically, you know, she says that we all have one psychological garbage can and we start filling it up from the day that we're born. Any kind of event that happens that's crazy, tragic, you know, we just keep stuffing it in. And if you're not actively emptying that psychological garbage can, it's going to overflow and it's going to cause problems in your life. And so what we like to do is we we do stress coaching and we teach people how to empty that psychological garbage can and you know and keep them on the mend and in a good place you know that's that's kind of what we want to do we want to head that off before the bad stuff happens you know start self medicating exactly cuz that's what happens yeah. that's that's exactly what happens if we if we don't take care of those things so i'm i'm glad that you were finally able to find someone that could give you that help and get you back healthy again, you know? And we appreciate you sharing well, your story. There, there is hope out there and to overcome things and, and survive. There, there definitely is. And it just matter of just when you're ready for help, just reach out to it. Right. But sometimes you know? that's the hardest part, you know, is, is making that decision to reach out. Well, and also too, it just depends on what your addiction is, and you kind of feel like you're more isolated. Like my my addiction it was pornography, mm, yeah. And so here I am, a Christian man having a pornography addiction, and I felt isolated and alone. Right. And especially thinking, oh man, I'm going to get judged so hard. And especially at the time when, whenever I would even a hint hint at talking about having an issue in that area. Uh, most of the guys would be just like, oh, there you can't get addicted to pornography. That's just men being <laughs> men. You know, that's just yeah. normal. And it's just like it's not normal. Exactly. But after I started getting help, I kind of find out that I'm not alone. I'm actually mm -hmm. part of the majority. Mm -hmm. Right. That's you one know? of the and so uh, that's a big addiction that we find too. Yeah, it's just in, in first responders. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Oh, it, oh, it's the most relatively easiest oh, yeah. to get your hands on. It's everywhere. It's on your phones. I mean, 
in order for me to combat it, we had to put blockers on all of our electronics because it's just too easily acceptable, at least right. with, you know, alcohol or drugs and stuff like that. You can, you know, if you don't go into a liquor store. Now, granted, I I, I get it. It's still kind of like you still have to struggle with it. So, right. but it, it, it's not as relatively real. Like you don't can't just go onto your phone and look up alcohol and get, you know, buzzed right. off of it. Exactly. <laughs> pornography is literally right, right there. Yeah. That's crazy. And so, and, but that, that, it, it destroyed my marriage. I mean, my, before I finally got help before God, and this all happened because we finally got into a church. My wife and I felt comfortable with, I got into a men's Bible study that we were meeting up with. And I was just one of those days where I finally felt the tug that God says, you need to confess. And so at first I was terrified and then I ended up running away. I just made up an excuse and got out of there because I was just so terrified of it. Yeah. And then I called my wife up to tell her what happened. And she, she knew about my addiction and everything else before we even got married. And so, but I told her about it and I was like, man, God was just really telling me to open up about my addiction to pornography. And, and I was like, but I got scared and I ran and I'm, I'm sure where you at? Like I'm driving to work. He goes, okay, Jonah, I'm just going to call you Jonah until you <laughs> for a week. She addressed me as Jonah. That's so I finally, the next following Friday when we had it, I confessed to them. And what was so scary was thinking I was going to be rejected, but actually happened to be very well accepted. And right. they got me hooked up with a group called Pure Desires. Good deal. So if you guys are struggling, if you guys do have guys struggling with it, I highly recommend Pure Desires. Try to find a local group. Pure Desires. Okay, we'll have to remember that for, for some yeah, of our... That, the guy, the guy who created that is actually a Marine fighter pilot from Vietnam. Hmm. And same story, struggles with it, whole bunch of trauma in his life. And so he created this because he was just like, you can't just pray it away. Exactly. There's far more to it. Yeah, There's far the more to it. Yeah. yeah. It's just, too. it's not just, it's not like, oh, it's the devil playing with it. No, it's just like any other addiction. You're self-medicating from yeah. past trauma. Right. And if you don't address those traumas, you're not going to get better. Yeah, I agree. And so... Yeah, and that's that's but, that's what we tell our first responders too. You you got to open up and you got to you got to talk about those things that are haunting you because that's how you're going to get better. You got to bring it out in the open and, I, and work through it. And I don't know if the first responders have the same issues that the veteran community does, where they feel like they can't open up to their oh, lives. Yeah. yeah, because like oh they don't understand, they wouldn't understand, and stuff like that. It's like if you have a truly loving wife, for one, they already know. Exactly. They're just you know. They're the like it was like you know my wife Kara she was the one listening to the nightmares I was having she was I have assaulted her a couple of times in my sleep uh, she you know and there, there's a bunch of other stuff that happened and it was just like but she I couldn't hide it from her she she heard right. it all she, right. I was reliving everything yeah in well my in our nightmares. trainings we actually encourage the spouses to attend our trainings because really they are the first line of defense. But then some of them don't know what to say or do. So we want to be able to give them the tools so that they can help mm -hmm. to help them. That That's huge to us. We we really like to involve our spouses and significant others. Oh, yeah. And that, I definitely agree with that. And well, it's just also, too, I just learned from our group that, you know, you know, women, 
for intimacy is opening up. And if we bottle up, they don't feel like we love them. But if we do open up and let them in, that's something truly intimate to them. Right. And, and it really improves your relationship. I know for a fact that once I start opening up to my wife and actually talking about everything, I've noticed a big change in our relationship. Yep. And that's huge. Communication and, and being open and vulnerable to each other's that's that's where the love really stands out and blossoms. Yep. Well, Josh, I, I commend mean, you for everything that you've been through. <laughs> I mean, I salute you, you know. Um, you're an amazing person. Uh, you persevered through all that trauma and you've come out and you're making yourself so much better. Um, you know, and you're you're living your dream now, right? You got a family, you got kids. You're on your way to personal businesses, you know. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, you're doing great, and I, I, I do salute you. Yeah, and for the first time, it's like I don't know where guys have me going, but it's kind of excited to see where it takes yeah. me. Well, that you know, door will be open. Up a gun store, but <laughs> I want to open up a gun store, but I might end up doing something else. It's whatever God wants me to do. Yeah, for Him, so uh, He'll He'll lead you in the right direction. That's for sure. That is right. Well, I. Before we're closing up here, again, I'd like to thank you for for coming on, being our guest, sharing your story, because it is a remarkable story. Um, I can't believe everything that you went through, Um, but I'm so happy to hear that your life has come full circle and you're doing such, you know, uh, you're doing fantastic, you know, as a a person, as a father, as a husband, uh, I'm glad that your life is where it is for you. Um, And just like what you said is, you know, if you find yourself and you're living in those dark times, you got to reach out and make the call for help. Once you do that, I, the help's there. Isolation is death. Yes. No matter what addiction you have. Uh, I That's agree. what keeps isolating yourself when you have an addiction is the is where the devil wants you. Yeah. And, and it's just going to make that addiction that much worse. So get mm-hmm. out there talk to somebody uh, for all our first responders uh, and military and veterans. You know, if, if you don't know who to talk to, talk to us, give us a call. You can reach under the shield at 855-889-2348 um, 24-7. If you hit extension one, you will get somebody on the phone. It's going to uh, kind of rotate around to the next or the first available uh, stress coach. We don't have your number at that point. We have the 855 number that you called. So if we get disconnected, you're going to have to call us back again. If you want to talk to Susan specifically, you can uh, press extension two. You'll go directly to her. Extension three, you'll get David Cohen in Alabama, and I'm extension four. Um, Also, Susan would want me to give out her cell phone number. Uh, If you want to reach Susan directly, her cell phone number is 334-324-3570. During the daytimes, text her because she's often in session. Um, at nighttime, you can call her uh, and get in touch with her um, to schedule uh, time to meet with her. If you want to speak with me directly, you can call my cell phone number at 480-861-6574. Again, it's that hardest thing is to initially reach out and ask for help. But once you ask for help, we're there for you. Uh, Families, that also goes for you. If you don't know who to call, you don't know 
which way to turn, uh, pick up the phone, give us a call. Uh, we have people that you can talk to. Uh, we have spouses that you can talk to, um, people that have, um, they're military vets also that have been on deployments and stuff. What, so whatever your situation is, we'll find somebody that has lived that same lifestyle that you have. Anything else, Tracy, before we sign off here for today? No, I have nothing. All right. Again, Josh, thanks you very much. Uh, and uh, good luck in your future endeavor for the gun store. Yeah, we'll keep in touch. Oh, well, thank you for having me again. <clears throat> All right. Come back and join us next week on Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress.